Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program, nearly 600 and counting are all available for free. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person, hey, just one time. <laughs> Hello, this is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you're well. I have Elvia Wilk on the program today. She has a novel out on Soft Skull Press. It is called Oval. It is a work of speculative fiction. And uh, it has been generating a lot of rave reviews. So we had a great talk. Elvia Wilk coming up in uh, just a bit. I do want to say uh, a few closing words about the uh, recent transcript fundraiser. That ended, you know, just a few days ago. Wound up being uh, a big success. Sold some t-shirts, raised some money. And uh, the transcript process is fully underway. A lot of you out there have volunteered to transcribe. It's going to be kind of a piecemeal approach. I'm going to pay for some transcripts out of pocket. Uh, the fundraiser is going to cover some of it. And then, uh, listeners have been volunteering to transcribe an episode or more. And that process is ongoing. So if you're listening, there's not like a deadline really, I, you know, I'd love to get this done as soon as possible, but if you're out there listening and you would like to transcribe an episode to help the cause, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. Otherwise, I just want to say another big thank you to everybody who has volunteered or who has bought a t-shirt or both. I sincerely appreciate it. Okay. And, uh, what else? I don't think there's anything else. Is there anything else? There's nothing else. I got nothing else. I'm very busy. I have some great shows coming up in the weeks ahead, but, uh, th this week that, uh, we're in right now, very hectic for me. I have a lot of books to read. 
like an unusually high number of books to read in a very short amount of time. So that's what I'm up to. I mean, not the worst thing in the world, right? But I just wish I could take a, a slower pace and be more deliberate about it instead of, it's like reading with your hair on fire. That's what it feels like. Not that I'm complaining or, uh, actually I'm kind of complaining, but I'm not going to do it for long. I'm going to stop complaining and I'm going to do that right now. Elvia Wilk is my guest. Her new novel is called Oval. It's available from Soft Skull Press, and uh, it's a terrific work of speculative fiction set in Berlin. It involves the uh, worlds of art and commerce. How's that for a broad description? We're going to get into it right now. You're going to hear all about it. Are you ready? This is Elvia Wilk. I worked as a art critic and essayist and also have written a lot about architecture over the years while I was living in Berlin. And part of my decision to write a book, which wasn't really a decision, I just was writing a story and kind of trying to work through some stuff and then it spiraled and continued to spiral. And <laughs> after a while... Met- metastasized is <laughs> metastasized the better word. Metastasized <laughs> is a good word. It's, it's, a, it's benign. It's not malignant. But, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Well, we'll see. Um, <laughs> it's only been out a week. Um, but I think I was really fed up with traditional art writing forms. I was fed up with the um, just like the constraints of length and how much you can really do in something like a 600 word review. Um, Luckily, writing for art publications frequently had gotten me in the habit of just sitting down and writing. So at least I kind of had the muscles to make myself do it, which I think kind of can't be underestimated. It's no small thing. I I think journalists, that's maybe some of the best training, like especially like newsroom or deadline driven. That stuff. Yeah. You just learn to churn it out um, and maybe not be so precious about it, um, which I think would have been harder if I hadn't been producing kind of simultaneously other stuff. But that also meant that everything that I wasn't putting into the sort of critical writing all ended up in the fiction bucket, which is probably why it metastasized, um, because it just became this venue for me to deal with everything else. Um, A lot of really personal stuff. So it started on a much more personal level. um, And it was... Well, I guess I was really interested in um, the interpersonal um, relationships that were developing in Berlin in my life at that time. I was dealing with gender stuff and dating straight men, which is a terrible thing to have to do, (laughs) especially in your early 20s. (laughs) Um, And I was just sort of not able to sort that stuff out in a short story, it turned out. And I also for whatever reason, wasn't able to sort it out in a story about exactly reality. (laughs) So I ended up kind of world building this not quite, not quite real version of Berlin, which I think was partially because I didn't, I I couldn't write something as close to home um, as I maybe initially thought I would. Um, I think fictionalizing it actually helped me um, distance myself from the story and let it take a life of its own. But then I think also I kind of invented this this world that then um, sort sort of allowed me to speculate on what was going to happen to the city and imagine how relationships might be affected by kind of near future events. Yeah, like so. Let's try to you know not to pigeonhole it, but um, it's not science fiction, right? It's speculative fiction, maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you think of it? Um, well, I've said elsewhere that I think of it as reality adjacent, which might mean sort of displaced from reality rather than set in a specific future time or like a specific 
maybe alternate world. Um, but much more that I feel like everything in the story is true. It just might not be factual. <laughs> the truth of it lies in kind of the bending of the, um, the actual world. I think that allowed me to get at some more, maybe, maybe you could say just sort of like taking things that are happening to their final logical conclusion. You end up with something very weird. Um, but it doesn't take, it only takes a nudge to get it there. Um, so I, can I yeah. stop you there? Yeah. Just because, uh, like some of the things you're speculating about or uh, some of the predictive elements of your book, I was curious, uh, in reading, like if you like, like started there somehow, like you did the thought work on the front end and, and got to that point and then that drove your fiction or if you got into the fiction and found it on the way. Yeah, I didn't have an outline. Okay. The outline came after I had written the whole thing and I realized <laughs> it needed one. <laughs> right. It um no, I was discovering the whole time. It was totally like a process of mining and sort of digging around and seeing what what this world looked like. And then I also had just tons and tons of world building that is luckily not in the final book. Just trying to figure out like um yeah, what these people's lives would be like, um, which is also something that I don't think gets talked about a lot when um, talking about the writing process is just how much of writing is editing and cutting out. Well, especially when you're world building like this. Yeah. Like it's you're a, creating a reality that totally. doesn't quite exist yeah. and it's got to have its own, it's got to have its own internal logic totally, and sort of set of rules. And I would imagine you have to stumble your way. You have to test out what those rules are. And then you kind of get this weird feeling for surface tension. Like how does it hold together? And then you have these things that you thought you thought were necessary, but you realize it doesn't actually contribute to the internal logic of the story, as you say. But there wasn't a lot of front end sort of like, this is the, this is the universe they're going to inhabit. And this is, this is why like, or like, this is what like one of the main plot points, or I guess, like, I guess like, um, um, like driving factors in this world that sets it apart from reality is the invention of a mountain in the middle of the city on the former Tempelhof airfield, which is currently um, one of Europe's largest undeveloped public spaces. Um, and so the Berg invention um like, well, the background story is that it was an actual proposal for a way to develop the city at one point that a young architecture firm made in real life. Um, yes, it was a, it was a joke and a hoax, but also real and also a real provocation. What and were they going to build a mountain out of? Uh, dirt imported from elsewhere. Oh, really? <laughs> and kind of, they wanted to, they called it a vertical nature park that would mainly be inhabited by animals and kind of for hiking and skiing. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, it does. It's a great idea. It's also like, a, it raises a lot of really good questions about development and why we need to fill space and develop space when we could, what would undevelopment look like? Um, so I just took that idea, stole it completely with their permission. And, um, and once I had the mountain, then the story started to kind of, write itself on one level. So it was more like finding the setting, finding the device and then kind of, yeah, spinning it into motion. And you, you like, just for listeners, like basic, um, storyline, you have Anja, am I pronouncing that right? Anya. Anya. Yeah. Sorry. No. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm with, with Ganja. Um, Anya and Lewis. Mm -hmm. So there's a relationship. It's a relationship story. Um, but right. it's also playing on, um, these bigger themes and, you know, themes of, uh, development, the world of the worlds of art and commerce. And, you know, a couple of things come to mind as I think about that. One is that, you know, you didn't start with an outline, so you didn't have all of the stuff preconceived, but I know that you were uh, influenced heavily by Vonnegut. 
mm-hmm. um, who I think a quote from him is the epigraph yeah, of the book. Yeah, it's the first one. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I'm a huge Vonnegut fan. I'm from Indiana. I'm from Indiana. Okay. Well, I figured there was, <laughs> yeah. I was like, no one just has a character no. come from Indiana. No, it's not a thing. Okay, yeah. so we'll get to Indiana. <laughs> Good. But uh, Vonnegut, if you're from Indiana, and especially if you're like, you know, not, uh, I don't know, uh, normal Indiana person or something. You feel like a little bit, but he was kind of like a saint to me. It's like, okay, he really mattered. To yeah. Me. He really yeah, mattered to me too. Way. Yeah. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, um, one of the things about his work, having read it is that I always got the sense that he started with theme, mm-hmm. which is not the way it typically works for most people. In my experience, usually theme is one of the things that sort of occurs at the end where you're like, Oh, so that's what I was, that's what it was. Yeah. That but was for me, problem. it always felt like he started with some like high minded thematic premise mm-hmm. and then was trying to kind of like write a proof or something in his hmm. fiction for it. That's a that's a nice way to put it. The, yeah. I think on one level, what he was also doing was coming up with a theme and then undercutting it with humor the entire time as a way of proving it, as you say, like to kind of test it by just how absurd he could make it and would it kind of come around back to itself, um, which is something that I really wanted to learn from, um, was this use of humor and absurdity to show how absurd things are. Um, because he, it, while he's inventing absurd scenarios a lot of the time, also a lot of what he's doing is just explaining the real world as if to an alien or a child. Right. And when he does that, you re- you're like, well, this is a terrifying situation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he says, this is what the president of the United States is. And you're like, uh-oh, that yeah. sounds not so good. <laughs> and then, um, but I, I agree. I think the way that, um, he seems to, he seems to be writing the story, um, in a way that is sort of, um, right. Like he, he begins with a premise and then he just, he really just follows it to its kind of logical conclusion. Um, and I think I learned a lot from him in terms of, um, narrative structure in a way that, um, I mean, he has all these ideas about like the perfect narrative structure and like these eight kinds of story, which I tried very hard not to look at because (laughs) you'll get sad if you admit that there probably are only eight kinds of story. (laughs) (laughs) What was it? Like, um, I think there's a, there's also like this, uh, school of thought that there's two kinds of stories. Right. uh, At least he has eight. (laughs) A man man or a woman goes on a journey Mm -hmm. and then a stranger comes to town, right? right? There's that whole... I think Vonnegut's story um, outlines man in a hole is my... The one that I adopted. (laughs) Man in a hole is a good (laughs) storyline. Things go bad, he gets out. But he also, you know, he has kind of... He had some scientific 
genes and training totally and like a like a more scientific science fictiony bearing than yeah. your typical literary fiction writer exactly and he well um a lot of his life actually influenced the book in sneaky ways um which i i don't think are actually very important for people to know but one interesting um note is that his brother invented the tactic of cloud seeding which is to forcefully make it rain by shooting a chemical compound, usually silver iodide, into the sky, which has never been fully scientifically like backed up that this will like consistently work. But he was very adamant um, about its potential, um, and so his other family members, like his his brother in particular, kind of represent other kinds of writing science fiction. Like it's what could be more science, like creating the science fiction of making it rain, right. um, but in a hands-on way. And so there's this uh, this idea of weather manipulation comes up a lot in the book as part of this like, Vonnegut inspired universe. Well, but I feel like geoengineering, isn't that what it's called? Yeah. Like that's coming. It's going to have to happen. It must be happening more than we realize. I mean, people, I mean, or at least in laboratories, like there's got to be a race to like figure out how to like, Definitely. how do we refreeze the uh, polar ice mm-hmm. caps? And I remember uh, Elon Musk talking about Mars and he's like, yeah, we're just going to, we're just going to detonate some nuclear weapons at the poles you know i'm just like this is bananas <laughs> they i mean the idea of like asteroid mining and all of this i mean yes like like mainly geoengineering is just kind of like shooting bombs at stuff or shooting missiles <laughs> at stuff um but during the vietnam war there were some apparently declassified documents about um uh like the slogan was make mud not war which was a campaign to um like cloud seed above like enemy territories so that they wouldn't be able to move (laughs) and it's like supposedly this is a military tactic that is like probably not so well known because it probably doesn't work very well (laughs) yeah but um yeah anyways just the the um um the strangeness of vonnegut's world has been important um but maybe the first thing that was important to me about him was just this um, this idea of the writing as an inside joke with himself, which he even says explicitly in an introduction to his book, Slapstick, which is that this was a present to myself. Happy birthday, me. Yeah, right. It's a joke I wanted to tell. The maybe only I'll understand kind of thing. Well, and another thing that I wanted to ask you, or another thing that I feel like your book does, and it seems like a reason that you wrote it coming from a journalistic background is that it allows you to get inside and understand and critique systems mm-hmm. that are really complex and mm-hmm. hard to wrap your head around. Right. And like fiction provides a way in. Yes. Um, which I appreciate because like uh, things like um, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> that no, one. Yeah, like that one. Like just this like a monolith. Like we all kind of know what it means in context, but like what does it really mean? And like what really are the implications? Mm-hmm. And you know, by narrowing the field a little bit and I think looking in particular at the relationship between um capitalism and art um just as an example, mm-hmm. like allowed you I would imagine to understand it better. It was like was that part of what you were working towards? Definitely. Um I think probably writing emotions that you don't understand um, is the best way for me to deal with them anyway. And 
I don't think that is to say that they become intelligible, but that the emotions themselves gain their own form of intelligence, which is something that Agnes Varda, the late filmmaker, said more or less about making films. She said, if I don't understand something, I film it. It's not to say that then I understand it, um, but it's to say that um, I, I suppose that it becomes concretized and that you have a point of access to this thing that you don't understand. Um, and in regards to large scale systems, I completely agree that stories provo- provide points of access. You know, fiction allows you through characters, through world building, um, through really intimate character portrayals, actually, to not just talk about what capitalism does, but how it feels, what it does to the body, what it does to your relationships. And I'm really still kind of struggling with this idea of how we inherit structures of feeling from systems we don't understand. Um, and just, it's very uncanny the moments that you bump up against those systems and you realize that you've inherited a lot of your ways of relating to your friends and your loved ones um, that have nothing to do with, with what you actually might want or um, just like where, where's the agency in your relationships. Um, And I think this, maybe this idea of um, like a, a bit of a crisis about where your desires are coming from and where your behavior patterns are coming from is a theme throughout the book. Like, is it, is it real? Is it really me? Are these my quote, authentic feelings? Um, are these implanted by um, capitalist structures? Are these implanted by the way that I use technology? And is there any way of separating those things? Of course not. Um, but how can you identify your political agency and your real desires within those systems that are so insidious and so totalizing and so opaque? Um, so that opacity and like inability to understand the complexity of the way, the way the world is run, um, which is not sort of even really run by humans and never has been. (laughs) Who's it run by? Um, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) it's run by a complex assemblage, I guess, of humans and non-humans, including the ecology, the ecological systems that were embedded in the microbes in your gut are making at least a large portion of your decisions with you, you know, and um, I guess technologies that we have used to augment ourselves um, and let kind of given some, some degree of decision-making power themselves, I think, uh, yeah, I've just become really aware of how the non-human world is kind of <laughs> has has really taken on um, a lot of the decision-making um, power that I think we have previously thought we only had. Yeah, humans can be pretty arrogant in assessing their importance. We like to think we're making decisions, but we never have. Of course, it's only become it's only zoomed into focus the our kind of helplessness in the face of gigantic systems, what have been called hyper objects. Um, It's only, yeah, it's only recently with the knowledge of um, ecosystems and kind of the catastrophe of climate change that we're, you know, it's very hard to not pay attention to that now. Although a lot of people try really hard not to pay attention to it. But that has just kind of brought into focus the embeddedness that I think has always been the case. This is also something that I'm trying to figure out in the book as sort of, um, yeah, how, how, um, like you could reconcile micro and macro levels through a story, like how a personal relationship could be indicative of a political situation rather than kind of like, um, 
like simply resulting from it, like that it could actually help you identify the political situation through your personal life. <laughs> so what's going on with personal relationships in the age of Trump? Is there a diagnosis you can give us? <laughs> like, how oh, is it affecting? I mean, I know it's oh, everyone's it's very, differently. Yeah. <laughs> is there any way to generalize it? Um, it depends where you are. Things in America are different than things elsewhere. Obviously, um, a certain worldview is spreading quickly. But part of what was also weird about writing the book as an expat living in Berlin um, was kind of um, this feeling of Berlin as a bubble where um, the world is happening always somewhere else. And you're kind of in this outside of space and time, or you can be if you're seeking that feeling. And historically, I think it's been this possibility space where people go to escape. And within that escapism, there is wonderful possibility. You could create something really great. Sounds um, fantastic. Yeah, but then on one level, you're just hiding. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah. I want to hide. I'm ready. I also wanted to hide for a long time. But then I eventually was like, I am completely divorced from what's going on in the U.S. where I'm from, and I felt the need to actually move back to New York right after the 2016 election, hmm, I, which is the opposite of a lot of people uh, who are like, time to flee. Um, but I just felt like I, I have to understand this on a different level than sort of reading the news and talking to people. Like, what is it like to live in this America? Yeah. Um, it doesn't feel great. No. I, was just <laughs> I don't thinking know if that, I can generalize. I think about it all the time. I'm like, wow, we're living in the time of a mad king. Like I never, mm -hmm. I think ten, even five years ago, I would have been surprised to think, maybe not that surprised, but I don't know. I don't think you ever thought to yourself like, wow, Donald Trump's going to be the president. He's going to go batshit crazy. Mm -hmm. The country's going to go crazy until, you know, tip towards authoritarianism. Like we are living in it. Absolutely. It's, it's unbelievable. That's the strange thing about writing fiction that is more speculative or less beholden to what's happening now is that, for instance, while writing the book, I constantly had this feeling like, uh-oh, the world's catching up very quickly. A lot of things that I'm thinking about are not, in, they're like, you know, it's been said many times before, but that fiction can't keep up with the weirdness and the freakiness of the situation we're living in. But I also think that's why fiction is cool, because it's a slower medium, um, which demands a different pace, both reading and writing. Um, and when things are happening so quickly, um, it's hard to change your maybe like change your way of engaging to really like deal with a novel and really engage, like really immerse yourself in it. I think that's great. <laughs> well, but it's also kind of uh, affirming, I would imagine as you're writing and feeling the world catch up with you, like a little nerve wracking, but also like, okay, I'm on the right track. <laughs> Like, like I'm, I'm, uh, assimilating, you know, a lot of this, uh, is that the right word information, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. like bringing it all together. And I think a lot of times, um, that's what our best fiction and our best thinkers do is that you're sort of an, you, you know, your antenna is up and you're catching these disparate signals and you might not quite know what to make of them. Um, and then, you know, you put them all together and it, start, <laughs> it starts to build a picture. You know? Yeah, that's a, it's, that's a hopeful way to put it. Sometimes I don't know if my antennas are up again, because I'd rather hide. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when they're up, yes, I mean, it's important to say probably that I don't think of the book as predictive in a traditional science fiction way. So most science fiction as a genre, like it's often thought about as successful when it does successfully con um, invent or predict what is going to happen. There are a lot of, you know, a lot of stories about like Arthur C. Clarke inventing satellites and stuff. But um, 
A, I'm not very like like savvy in that way and would never like deign to try to predict the future. It's also not exactly what I'm interested in. It may be more in, interested in how fiction and reality can co-invent each other um, and maybe drive each other in a feedback loop that isn't quite so literal. Like it's not, there's no like real like technological invention in the book. It's not hard sci-fi at all in that way in that the, um, the elements that distinguish it from the real world are, yeah, they're not dependent on like my technological fantasy. Well, um, but I think building a mountain is quite a technological feat. In some ways, yes, definitely. I'm going to get into the uh, dirt importing business. <laughs> it's, it's got a future. Um, there is an artificial mountain in Berlin already called Teufelsberg, which is a Cold War listening station, um, which is um, maybe maybe like the Berg, the name of the mountain in the book, has some echoes to this already like... Um, um, just like maybe the artificiality of cities in general already and the artificiality of constructed nature and what we think of as natural space, like how at this point, you know, it, it's not, there's no natural space that hasn't, there hasn't been like a complicated legal process to declare it natural. Yeah. <laughs> like all, all natural space is circumscribed and kind of imposed. Um, and I think that, yeah, somehow this also, this idea of like, um, yeah, like isolating ourselves in cities and isolating ourselves from ecosystems and containing natural space um, is is all like a like a just yeah kind of like crappy <laughs> physiological experience. Um, we need to like have because I think about this all the time. I love nature. That sounded really. Uh, oh, I also love yeah, nature, <laughs> but I mean, I, I really do. Like, I, I kind of need it. Like, I like mm-hmm. to be out in. Uh, the woods or up in the mountains or like, you know, I really uh, miss that because I used to live in Colorado and Mm -hmm. I got a lot of it and sort of caught the bug. But then I've lived in Los Angeles for all these years. And sometimes I'm like, I should move away. I should Mm -hmm. go to someplace beautiful and and quiet and in contact, like in more direct contact with nature away from. But then there's another side of me that's like, you know, it's a weird privilege to be in this like giant village (laughs) with like so much human experience happening everywhere. Like you're not insulated in the way that you can be in a place like Boulder or, you know, some mountain town. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think there's a part of me that likes to have contact and like to like work against that impulse to hide. Right. You know, sort of like what you were talking about with like moving back to New York. Yeah. I also, I'm always struggling with that fantasy of removing myself. Um, yes, like maybe being more like um, embedded in the natural environment, but um, yeah, but I feel like I'm not sure what um, I'm not sure what I imagine my responsibility is to be kind of in a city and among people, but it feels at least at this point in my life that it's the right thing to do. Um, but I wonder about this fantasy of retreat and like how much we depend on that fantasy of retreat to continue to live the way that we do. Like if that's always the option and like could really happen, um, then yeah, it's kind of like the flip side of the urban life. Um, I wish I could split my time. That's the fantasy. That's the fantasy. You're like, right. If that's I could just have like a, a vacation a home cabin somewhere <laughs> just to get yes. out and just go breathe and yes. then come back to the chaos when I'm, when I'm ready. Yeah. When I've had enough of the quiet <laughs> one day. 
one retirement <laughs> I, mean, I don't know you may be if, if we can i mean retirement's kind of a fantasy too retirement's a fantasy absolutely i mean all fantasies that are deconstructed in trump's america let's say there won't be any nature left and the social security net will be gone so oh. sorry okay i've been told that my book is very bleak which i didn't think at the time i was like well i'm just just writing what's happening yeah it I mean, sorry yeah it's like is it dystopia like absolutely where do you live <laughs> yeah right <laughs> So I want to ask you about a specific aspect of this dystopia, which I may be blind to in the actual, um, but which your book um, puts on display. And that is this uh, relationship between individual artists and corporations and how corporations are co-opting artists. Mm -hmm. And in your book, it's taken to like its logical extreme. Mm -hmm. But can you talk a little bit about that? Like, is that how, like, I know that like Facebook hires like artists to like come paint Sure. The lobby, and yeah. like, you know, they pay an ex a stupid amount of money for these people to come do this. Or I think the guy who painted their lobby originally got stock options. <laughs> yeah, that is true. He I did read like, that as well. Yeah, he did like a, a, a couple of days work and like wound up making like $50 million from it because he, <laughs> he walked away with all these like early Facebook stock options. <laughs> this is a lucky artist. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. Also, I just wonder what that artist's art career looked like afterwards, but did it even matter? Um, he's, he's actually, he's a Korean uh, American guy from LA. Really? And I think, yeah. Do you know what he's doing now? I want to say he's killing it. But wow. I'm going to, I'm going to Google this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to say he was, I think I saw him on Anthony Bourdain's show. Oh, wow. At some point. He's all over. I, you know. Okay. I'm, yes, I need to be more up to date on the Facebook artist and residency um, status, actually. Um, the idea of artists embedding in corporate contexts um, is, has definitely a historical legacy, um, one of the main precursors that I'm mo really interested in is the artist placement group who, um, I guess in the sixties in the UK, um, was a group of artists, um, um, centrally this guy, John Latham, who, well, he helped place artists in industrial context. So he'd be like, you go to the steel mill, um, don't do anything, just, you know, kind of be there, um, and do what you feel like. And there were all these rules of engagement, mainly, um, that the artist was not there to serve the corporation and the corporation was not there to serve the artist. And there was this invisible third client that the artist was meant to serve, um, which he never, John Latham never fully identifies, but in my mind, it's kind of like the public good. Um, and today might be more like the planet or like, <laughs> like the environment or just like non-humans and humans. Um, anyway, um, this, um, this is very interesting to me, this idea of complicity and criticality, um, the way that the arts engage with um, economic systems in general, which, of course, you could talk about historically in lots of ways. Um, but what happened maybe in the 70s and 80s in America was um, on the West Coast in particular, a lot of very explicit collaborations between art and technology and art and science, um, such as the experiments in art and technology, which was a series of placing all sorts of artists, um, mainly matchmaking, like kind of pairing them with like a cool scientist. Um, and like, you know, really interesting things happen and really boring things happen. Like a lot of the time the scientist was like, what can you do? And the artist was like, you're thinking so functionally, this is nonsense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like the, the way that they were not compatible and the way that the vocabularies didn't match up and that they couldn't produce anything is just as telling as the ones where they came up with something cool. Um, but so I'm drawing on a lot of this historical legacy in the book to, um, 
I guess, like, yes, moving through the present day where a lot of artists I know do actually work um, in a consultant capacity while, like, alongside their artist practice. And some of them have sort of transformed from being artists to being full-time consultants. It pays well. Um, it pays or a lot can, better it and can, it's a yeah. lot steadier if you can keep the work. Um, and in that, in that way, um, I mean, something very different has happened in, in the discourse about what complicity versus criticality looks like, where it's like, come on, we're all complicit all the time in everything. Like, wow, do we really need to have this conversation about artists like resisting the man anymore? Like, it's, it's, it's quite, it's harder to draw those lines. I don't think it means we shouldn't try and talk about what being complicit really means, but it's a completely different landscape from which to have that conversation. Um, so, right. So in the book, like, um, artists have mainly become employed by corporations and there's a different economic structure that isn't based on producing objects for sale, which I don't think is the worst thing because producing objects for a rich person to own or put in a vault, um, somewhere in the Emirates. I'm not sure that's like the best model either. <laughs> that it really is like, you know, you think about these art artists, like who are, um, true of spirit generally like they love their creative people who love um to do their work and they want to make a living and so they get a dealer or a gallery or whatever but then who winds up buying it probably someone they would not mm -mm. think too highly of were they to hang out with them <laughs> who's yeah. going to take their like beautiful painting and like hang it or like you say lock it away in some vault and it just seems like a sad end for the art it is a sad end it's a sad it's it's a sorry fact that art, I mean, it's also, it's also feels inevitable. I mean, art has always been implicated in um, financial structures and has always been used in ways, you know, be become instrumental, I guess. Um, but it is now, you know, a massive form of money laundering <laughs> and a way of accumulating capital um, and sequestering it. Um, and yeah, I'm not, I'm certainly not like arguing that that means that the the like the solution is for artists to um, become like fully um sponsored by like an institution or a corporation or a government um however like i think maybe the like the the proposition of the book would be like well the anti proposition of the book suggests like what else like what other models might we have um or maybe i'm I haven't, I haven't figured it out <laughs> clearly. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, but I think like it's a, it's maybe always, it's always been a problem to some degree, but I look around in our time and I look at my own life and you have to make a living mm -hmm. and you have these creative impulses and, mm -hmm. um, talents or interests or whatever. And trying to find a way to make it all work is difficult. And right. I have seen friends of mine who are like really gifted writers just become like, you know, it's like advertising, marketing, totally. branding. And so Can I mean, you blame them. You can't, I mean, no. they have to, people have to make a living, but it's just, it breaks my heart. And it, and I'm also like thinking about my own life. It's like, Oh man, like I think if I won the lottery, I would just want to be like Montaigne. I'd want to just go. Is that have, what you would do? I think I would. I think <laughs> I would just like, I mean, I don't think I would build a tower, right? but like a room full of books mm -hmm. and like do that work, mm -hmm. I think would be, I think it's a noble way to live. Yes. Well, yeah, totally. I mean, and yet, like, uh, I don't know, like, <laughs> like the only thing that would make that possible, well, it's just like that could be possible for a select few people in our current world. 
but it's never going to be like a widespread possibility right. in the system that we have. And so, um, but what if I took my lottery winnings <laughs> and distributed them? Well, <laughs> you could create universal basic income. Yeah, that's right. I will. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, the John, uh, the John MacArthur foundation or it's whatever. It's your responsibility to play the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Yeah. Okay, good. And it's like one of these things I feel sort of guilty about, but especially when the, the jackpot goes really high, it, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to do. It's like the odds <laughs> of winning, is. the odds of winning are like the odds of like, I have better odds of like getting struck by lightning while riding a horse at full gallop, which by the way, I've done <laughs> once in my you've life. You've done. Once. Did but, you get struck by lightning? No. <laughs> okay. So, so you're good. Yeah. Maybe you're due and you should play the lottery. Well, that's what I like. That's why I like to do it. I like, it's not that I think I'm going to win necessarily, but I like living with the possibility. Yes. It's like, fundamentally optimistic. Just like, yeah. And just like, it's, it's a weird world. Who knows? Someone's got to <laughs> yeah. win this thing. Someone wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's crazier than literally any of our thought structures. Or like, like playing humans the stock are not market rational or... people in yeah. any like we're not rational creatures. <laughs> like you know, reason is overstated. I would say as a capacity of the human mind. Yeah, that seems like if there's one thing I'm interested in, like pop psychology for, I like that it constantly disproves the idea that we are rational beings who are making decisions based on like cause and effect. What about will, like, a free will? Are you a free will person or a, there's no free will? Oh, that's a tough one. I, 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 mean, re I read a book about this and I still don't know what the hell's, I, I was like, I don't know what to think about this. Like it, what did the author say? No free will. No free will. Yeah. But from a God perspective or from a, like, like you're conditioned by your environment perspective, more conditioned by your environment, it's right. a Sam Harris book. So okay. he, is, he doesn't do God, but, right. um, I think it was just like, but it becomes like, it can, it can cause like a nihilism to sort of <laughs> develop. Cause you're like, well, if I don't have any free will and mm -hmm. I'm not the one making these choices and decisions moment to moment, then like, what do I care? There's nothing like, take your hands off the wheel. Like well, if I wanted to take it a different direction, maybe I would say that, like once you come to terms with how little agency you have, like maybe I use the word agency instead of free will because I'm afraid of this like like overlord image that I get when I say free will, like God or otherwise, God or robots, you know, whatever <laughs> you think is taking away our free will. Um, but maybe once you acknowledge the extent to which you're limited, then you can find the cracks where you can actually make decisions and do stuff. Um, but I think you probably have to reach that acknowledgement of how just stunted our abilities are, um, for various reasons. <laughs> yeah. Part, part of them, just like the amount of the like unconscious and subconscious, um, stuff going on that we don't have access to in our minds. But, um, of course also just because of the limitations, like economic limitations and, um, the way we're conditioned by, um, techno capitalism. Yeah. That, and like, like, like you were saying earlier, like the relationships that we have to ecological systems and mm -hmm. our microbiome and or, right. or that, that's what it's called, right? Your yes. gut. So, uh, I think that in general, if human beings could, like take it down a notch in terms of their self-assessment, uh, and could get maybe a more, uh, immediate and deeper sense of connectivity. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's a humility in that. Right. And there's also to me like a deep reality and truth in that. Right. And I think we've gotten divorced and you talk about like cities and how, you know, we've imposed these sort of artificial, um, conditions on our physical environment. Right. Just designations, designated spaces. Yeah. And like, I just, I don't know, we're, we're just, we're at a remove, especially I think urban people from 
the land and yeah. from well, the and earth. we're definitely yes, and we definitely become more polarized from each other when we kind of create those enclaves. Um, in a lot of ways, the Berg in the book serves as a really ambivalent fantasy about like this fantasy of retreat, this fantasy of like renaturing the city, and like this like idyllic. Um, nature reserve and this um the characters live in an eco community on the side of the mountain so they're kind of like struggling with performing how natural their lives like how sustainable their their lives should be um because sustainability is really kind of a social performance for them rather than because they i think probably because probably because they um they have so little belief in their capacity to actually affect systems that you know the idea of like yeah gray water recycling is an idea and it's a concept and it's a fantasy more than they can actually imagine it changing or fixing the world um so again just like that disconnect between like i think like personally i i really struggle with this like um um, the disconnect between my behavior and these and climate change, for instance, certainly small behaviors have an impact and add up, but you don't see it and you don't feel it. So right. that's why it's how do you bump issue. up against it? It's, and how why, do you convince people? That's right. It's, it's such a tough political issue because mm-hmm. it's, it's especially, you know, a decade ago, um, or more, it was just so it was far off. Mm-hmm. So you were trying to convince people to change their behaviors in fundamental ways based on something that was like very, very slow moving. And totally. Not- and beyond a human lifespan, even. I mean, it's like, like these, we're talking about timescales, like far beyond an individual human, um, which means thinking on the level of this like abstract humanity. I'm like, what's that when you have like kids, right. you know? Right. <laughs> like, well, what about your grandkids? I yeah, mean, yeah. But great, great, great grandkids. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, most people don't give a shit. And I think that it's hard. Like I recently got rid of my car and, uh, I'm not, you know, you talk about the performative aspects of sustainability and like virtue signaling, but biking is great. It's great. <laughs> and that's what I've been trying like biking and public transportation. And then if I really need to, I'll take an Uber. Right. But the performance um, is not divorced from the reality also, you know what I mean? Like it's very good and it's also maybe performative and those things are compatible. Well, I think it's also necessary. Like, this is the argument that I always make is like, like people are like, I can't believe you bike around this crazy city. You're going to die. People should see it. And I'm like, people need to see it because then other people go, well, maybe I'll do that. Right. If we're all in our cars, then no, there's going to be no, it's not going to exist as a possibility. Right. It's it's this lack of imagination. I mean, in general, you could like, I think there's like a sad lack of political imagination and also just like, yeah, behavioral lifestyle imagination. Um, which I also, I have a really hard time thinking of different ways that I could run my life. Um, and yes, like having, the more bikers you have, the safer it gets too. Like these things are not, I'm, I'm certainly like not denigrating sustainable behaviors. I'm more trying to like tease out this, um, the fact that they might be performative and also have an impact and maybe just performing them is enough. Like maybe you don't have to believe it's going to have, maybe you don't have to feel it, but maybe lots of life is like that. <laughs> well, and I think, I mean, it's like the power of one, you know, you change, like, I don't think you need to I think it's a game of percentages, uh, at least the way that I conceive of it. Like you don't mm-hmm. have to bat a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't have to go full vegan to be like a climate warrior. But like, yeah. <laughs> what if you cut back by 25%, mm-hmm. you know, like meat intake, like that's going to, if we did that collectively, it would have a huge impact. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so it's like, you know, sometimes it's just like, you know, just try to be a little bit different. Don't try to be like radically different and maybe yeah. make your changes more incremental and then do it in different spaces so that it's not like you're pouring all of your energy into one particular channel. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other like main device in the book that separates it from reality, um, is the, um, a drug called oval, which is where the book gets its title, which, um, one of the main characters, Lewis invents, um, as part of his artist consultant work at an NGO. And he, his belief is that the pill will, um, well, it's what it's supposed to do is unlock financial generosity in the brain of the user, um, generosity and empathy, but specifically with a financial result (laughs) so that you'll actually kind of like donate to a cause or, um, uh, help a person you see suffering. Um, and this is very much this idea of like a monolithic totalizing solution, not kind of like, let's all change our behavior slightly. Right. Like let's just drug the population (laughs) into being better people. Right. Um, which like on one level, like this is absurd. This is immoral. This is terrible. And on another level, it's like, well, (laughs) how are we going to get them to change? Yeah. No, I think Um, about this all the time. I'm like, if we could just get world leaders in a room and everyone takes MDMA, (laughs) Like it's like a college freshman dormitory like logic, but there's not. It's it not. It sounds like the worst party. It sounds like such a nightmare. But I mean, I, there's a part of me that's like somebody needs to dose. I want Trump's oh, cabinet yeah. to dose them. <laughs> dose them. Keep them away from the nuclear codes. Like you know, it's like remove. Very like California mentality. A hundred percent. But I'm like, well, well, it could be. You know, I don't see how uh, it could hurt. <laughs> Look at where we are right. without it. Let's give it a shot. Totally. I mean, yeah, and just once you start to break down, like, okay like the hormones in our food, like the pollutants in the air, like what, what, why do we think that we're not being kind of like artificially affected constantly by external chemical agents? Um, again, not to say that like, I think the population should be like, like there, there shouldn't be like something in the water supply. Like I don't think an infrastructural solution or of like coercion is like the best one by any means, but it does just bring up all these really thorny questions about like, do we care why people do things? Like, does it matter if it's because it's, you know, something you ate or something you took? Or like, is it like what I always think like darkly is that it's going to take like serious cataclysm to affect the kind of deep right. human behavioral change that you're talking about. Right. So it's like, is that really what we're going to ask for yeah, as a do species? Do we need to really take it there? Yeah, um, probably. It's like, <laughs> it's so depressing to think about, but it feels like at least right now, there's just a lot of this sense of like, you know, playing violins on the deck of the Titanic, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, I think I was reading when I was prepping for the interview and you were talking about, or am I, I might be quoting the book, but it's like this thing in Berlin where, everyone's like super chill <laughs> right? and like, then you have a conversation about how things are like, Oh my God, like the climate, blah, blah, blah. And like, you get into this like line of thinking about how dangerous everything is and yeah. how much we need to change, but then everyone's sort of, and just then everyone's still pretty chill, chill. about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that becomes like super disconcerting to be around where you're like, why is like, <laughs> It's disconcerting to be around somebody who's panicky and outwardly right, angry, totally. but it's equally disconcerting to be around somebody who's like, whatever, bro. Yeah, passive. I mean, you can't be in a state of emergency mentally all the time, or very few people can. And also, like, there's only so much outrage to go around. And like, there's, you know, like, you can't, like, also this idea of empathy in the book, like, over-empathizing and overreaching and trying to co-opt other people's suffering or other people's grief or, like, how there's... Like this, it, maybe it's performative also, like a kind of performative, um, the 
I don't believe that empathy is useless. I just think that it's a lot of work. I don't think that it's something that is a chemical fix. I think that learning to empathize with other people and try to place ourselves in large-scale destructive systems takes a lot of imaginative work. It takes a lot of emotional labor. Um, it takes a lot of political organizing if you want to do that. Um, and yeah, so I guess maybe I'm, I'm arguing against implicitly the idea that there could be a quick fix. Um, rather than really like some hardcore communal efforts. Well, it's like any kind of like big, like if you take it down to the micro level, any kind of uh, significant, difficult human behavioral, emotional change, there's no, it's always, it always takes work. It always right. takes like that confrontation with difficult emotions and past behaviors and going to therapy or <laughs> right. going to meetings or whatever it is that people do. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's hard work, mm -hmm. but it's worthy. It, it's, it's worthwhile, you know, if you uh, see it through. Yeah. And I don't know how you collectivize that, you know, at well, scale. Yeah, group therapy. <laughs> like, it's, it's a good question. I mean, yes, there's something to be said for acting locally um, in the sense of um, dealing with your close interpersonal relationships and your way of relating to people around you. This is not irrelevant, um, like by any means. Um, and I think this idea of the micro and the macro that, um, like, does it matter if you have great politics, if you're treating your partner very badly, how does that, how do you justify those sort of like, like a megalomaniac political agenda? If it sacrifices your personal life, not to say that that's not a choice that some people should make, whatever it's up to you, but just like, how do you really justify and reconcile those kinds of like, um, yeah, like abstract versus very concrete behaviors? I think it's a good idea to just start, start at home. Yeah. I, I also think start at home, you know, like start there and work your way out. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's talk about, I want to get to Indiana because this is good. I'm glad. Yes. <laughs> I um, rarely get to talk about where, Indiana. Where are you from? I was born in Bloomington, okay. which is a college town where Indiana university is. Are where you the, my you, parents you, teach their academics. Exactly. Okay. Cause somebody as brainy as you, there weren't a lot oh, of those man. in Indiana. I'm like, how did that happen? So your parents are college professors. Yeah, that's maybe how it happened. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't know. But um, yeah, I grew up there on and off. We moved around also quite a bit, but that's still more or less kind of Midwest home base um, where they still live. It's a good town. Which town are you from? Uh, like suburban Indianapolis. Nice. It's very close, actually. Yeah, it's less than an hour. hour and yeah. a half down the road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I went to Bob Knight's basketball camp when I was a kid. Oh, my God. Was that it was terrifying? Terrifying. <laughs> He's a scary dude. He came in on the first day <laughs> and was just like, it was like, they bring all the campers into this like college uh, auditorium, like lecture hall, mm -hmm. and you're sitting there, and then he comes in, and, like, it's just like, you can hear a pin drop. <laughs> People are terrified of him. I He's love a it. scary guy. He was, I remember seeing him um, on the... Um, court, yeah, uh, and just being like, you know, this, he, no, people he loved him though. Yeah, well, that's the thing. They said the Indiana authoritarianism, like he was sort of the the general, you know. Yeah, and that's like, totally true. He would walk into assembly hall, and it was the same effect. Mm -hmm. He'd walk into a basketball arena, everyone would get quiet. Yeah. He and, had this, I mean, he, for whatever it's worth, he had some kind of charisma. I yeah. mean, maybe it was just like scary, but um, he was, yeah, he, I mean, he was like a violent guy, right? He's yeah. always like throwing chairs and stuff. Well, like psychologically, emotionally, physically, yeah. like he's just, a, he's kind of a he's mess. He's an interesting Indiana figure. There are a lot of them. Vonnegut, who else do we have? Mellencamp. Michael um, Jackson. Michael Jackson. Jane Pauley, David Letterman. Jim Davis, a the Axel cartoonist Rose. of Garfield. Yeah. <laughs> Axel, Axel Rose. That's Axel, a good one. Axel Rose feels 
in some ways to me really emblematic of a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, somehow um, me too. Yeah. I don't know how I would articulate that, but I don't know. Like yeah, like but he's from I want to say he's from um where's Purdue? West Lafayette. Mm-hmm. He's from up there. And uh the anger, there's a little bit of like hillbilly redneck, but there's also like some progressive politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just hedonism, right. rage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And yet, yeah, totally. Um, I, there's only a sm- sort of like small part of the book where I explicitly talk about Indiana, but the character Lewis is from Columbus, which is a town pretty close to mine, like within an hour's drive of Bloomington, um, which is known to be a Mecca for mid-century modern architecture, right? right. which has become one of my favorite places. I just love Columbus. Um, partially because of its really weird history, um, which is that this guy, J. Irwin Miller, um, in the 50s, inherited his family's diesel plant, or like, I guess, diesel engine. It was a diesel engine factory. And he spent a large portion of the profits on public infrastructure in the form of like hiring fancy architects to come and like design the public schools. So he would be like, okay, what's the cost difference of having like a crappy prefab building and having like Erosarin income? And then he would cover the difference and he would have the town help vote on what architects they wanted to come. So people felt involved. Why don't more rich is, people do this? It's just like a beautiful, I mean, in a lot of ways, like he also like profited from it and, you know, like tax breaks and he got to be around people. But um, who he wanted to be around, and there are all sorts of like ways that you could frame it as this is like a self interest story. But ultimately, it's it's like both, and ultimately Columbus really benefited. And I just love. I mean, to me, it's a kind of a quintessential Indiana story. This like middle of the road kind of like let's make industry and philanthropy work together. Yeah. He was like a really good ecumenical Christian, and but he had all of the, you know his Christian values were like extremely. Um, like not very proselytizing and not very hard line, very inclusive. And I mean, you know, there were, there were issues, but, but I do have this idea of Columbus as kind of like a, a Midwestern like um, paradise yeah. <laughs> for a few years anyway. Yeah. I mean, it, it never lasts like even Berlin. I mean, as an urban paradise, I not think. lasting, not lasting, <laughs> but they don't, they don't ever last. No. And like, I don't think I've ever lived in one. I don't think I've ever caught the wave where, <laughs> where like you're in a place yeah. at the time where it's happening, like Paris in the twenties, Berlin and, or, you know, Prague and just after the, uh, fall of the Soviet union, mm-hmm. and, you know, these places have, um, these brief yeah. moments of like high energy and low rent and an influx of creative mm-hmm. smart people who are doing interesting things and. Uh, it sounds like you were kind of in Berlin for a little bit of it, right? Or no? It's tough to say. The thing about Berlin is that it's always already over. I feel like since the 20s, people have been getting there and everyone's like, ah, oh, you're two years too late. Like the party, <laughs> right. you missed the party. And then, and then you, somebody else moves there a few years later and you're like, well, you missed the party. <laughs> you're just always passing it forward. This like myth of like, it used to be amazing. Right. But that's also how it sustains its, um, allure is by you know this kind of like it's constantly all almost like the end and i get that the only where the only place that i can think of specifically where i feel like there is something objective to point to is rent yeah like if the rent is is too high i agree it's, it, yeah i agree it forces the artists out then that's the, the that's the delineator but like right. if you live in a place that has like rich culture and high population density and all this stuff happening 
and people can afford to live there on a relatively working class income. Totally. There's a direct correlation. It's not like, it's not abstract. It's a really interesting time in Berlin. In some ways it's like, it's really a staging ground for uh, a lot of like urban struggles and a lot of what plays out um, um, like between um, different communities. Like right now there's a growing tech community in Berlin, um, which is Uh-oh. having a big effect. Recently they fought off Google, a Google campus, which is a, a kind of amazing. Um, but just like, you know, the former East West divide still has some, has some kind of effect on the urban geography and the way, you know, it's very segmented by neighborhoods. So you have like very, very green party neighborhoods and very, very like scary, like off day neighborhoods. And then um, What's off day? That's like the uh, right the wing. The Alternative for Deutschland, which is the, yeah, it's the right wing side. Um, and a lot of, you know, the elections, like elections that just happened and other elections coming up, it's, you know, and this, like the spread of nationalism and the fear of immigrants and all of this is playing out in the city, I would say very clearly in the way that the city government is regulating rents, absolutely, which are skyrocketing, maybe fastest in Europe, but they're discussing all of these rent caps and there's this real effort to regulate um, and a real like community efforts, but also citywide. And at the same time, just like super weird, like they're trying, they've been trying to rebuild the Prussian palace for like a decade, like exactly the way it was, even though nobody wanted it. <laughs> and meanwhile, Tempelhof, like every time they, they, um, they hold a public tender for like, how are we going to develop this massive empty space? Like it's really just an airfield for planes that don't come there anymore. And that's a community garden and it's for barbecues and it's wonderful. But then, you know, we should do something with it. We need to drive development. We need to build condos. We need a mall. And then every time that happens, the city is like, no, we want nothing. Like the citizens vote. We don't want anything. Good. Yes. Like just, which is again, this, like, it just feels like it's hovering in this space of, you know, what's going to happen. Like, is it going to become an overdeveloped nightmare? Some parts of the city already are. There's just like investment enclaves for like Russian investment, basically. Um, and nobody lives there, which is really weird. Um, but then you have these like preserved, like nothing spaces where you're just like, maybe we could keep it nothing forever. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how nice nothing is when you live in a city? Oh man. I just dream of, of somehow retrofitting LA with like a green belt that runs mm-hmm. from downtown to the beach mm-hmm. somehow, even if we have to build it over, like mm-hmm. on a, like build a, a highway, but the, there's a park on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we need something. Totally. Like that. We, yes, we really do. <laughs> I really agree. I mean, absence is sorely lacking in cities. Density is is really um, like a mental state. It's like a, it's affecting, um, and also just this idea of like rampant overdevelopment without a lot of consideration for the long term effects. Um, just being in New York right now, there's just kind of like endless battles for these like last strongholds of like, like I live um, a block north of Prospect Park where the Botanic Garden is under threat of two giant towers being built that will block out the sun. So I most mean, of their plants can't thrive anymore. It's just like how hard, like how, how bad do you have to be to want to like kill all the plants in the Botanic Garden? You know? 
Man. <laughs> it's a lot of people who are willing to be that bad. Right. Well, definitely. It's a lot of money of that condo development or whatever it is. But that's why just like an, an, a gigantic undeveloped airport is just so incredible. And just like leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Just let it be. Like, right. I mean, maybe like cut the grass so people can come out. And right. Maybe plant some trees or bushes or something. Right. But, but then at some point, I'm sure there will be a real argument to be made about not a lack of affordable housing. And then you end up in this weird like well, would it be better to give people houses? And like, that's well, actually a tough, like, I was gonna ethical say, compromise. Well, and that's the thing. There's a great op-ed in the New York Times not too long ago about liberals in particular, you know, these coastal cities who, you know, love to talk and virtue signal around mm -hmm. uh, affordable housing and homelessness. But then it's like, okay, so we're going to come into your neighborhood, which is all single family homes, and we want to rezone it so that we can build condos right. and multifamily buildings and right. people go, well, no, well, no, not in my, not in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so it becomes, uh, you know, try doing that in San Francisco in, um, you know, Pacific Heights or whatever it's called. And isn't that what it's called? That neighborhood? I don't know. I don't know. It, but you know, you do it in these places and people throw a fit basically. And they petition their city councilmen and no, they ultimately just don't want to see it a lot of the time. It's like, <laughs> right. it, it is this like abstract, like problem. Um, that if you can just like not confront and not see and not deal with on a daily level, then you can certainly want the best for, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's for like, others. Yeah. A lot of times it's like, you know, it might be like on the surface level presented as like this human concern, but really it's just like, would you just clean up my city? Yes, absolutely. I want my environment to be pristine. Mm -hmm. and You're blocking my view, you know, <laughs> you're blocking my view. Definitely. Um, yeah, I think about, I mean the, another like totally, um, Another way that Berlin has been really um, affected and maybe hopefully changed in some positive ways ultimately is the massive refugee influx that happened a few years ago um, when a lot of people arrived from Syria and elsewhere. And the creative class I found suddenly had a bit of a like, like a reckoning moment. Like there are a lot of people who need help. What like, do we have any tools? Are we at all engaged, um, especially people who aren't German, especially people who don't know the language? Like, in what ways can they actually advocate? In what ways can they participate? And I felt like there was a real effort to kind of um, do something tangible, um, which was promising. But then it also kind of devolved into a bunch of art experiments about the refugees, uh -huh. rather than kind of like any Would you sort just of engagement. Right yeah, and <laughs> I just photograph you for this project, uh -huh. and like, and that was also just sort of really mixed like it was really mixed what happened but i learned a lot from it from being there at that moment well, actually listen living in the states and hearing anything even remotely like that sounds way better than what we're doing right now yeah and i think i also have read i feel like canada does some good things around this particular stuff too it's all both it's all like like uh, um like in canada also like it's they're like wonderful projects that then end up falling short for just like totally sad reasons. I don't know. It's just all so mixed. We don't really have a lot of like, um, yeah, people who aren't in power don't necessarily have a lot of organization. <laughs> organization. It feels like we need, or we need better organizing. We need big systems. Like, yeah. and, and I feel like what we're seeing in terms of immigration problems now is tip of the iceberg compared mm -hmm. to what we're going to see, like pun intended, mm -hmm. uh, once climate once, change yeah. really starts to affect coastal cities. And in America, yeah. I mean, in other parts of the world, it's clear that it's driving immigration and migration pretty rapidly. 
Um, but in, wait, wait till Bangladesh is underwater. Like, yeah, these are very poor, like yeah. totally impoverished people. Millions of them that are suddenly going to have to move. Yeah, and we're, in response, or maybe in preemptive response, I think that yeah, that we're. It seems like the trend is to close down um, access rather than imagine ways that it could be. Um, yeah, like more accessible for everybody. Um, which, yeah, again, like interesting fights in Europe right now. I'm very curious to see what's going to happen to a place like Berlin. Well, and it's like, you know, it's not easy. There's, it's, there's no quick fix. Right. And it's a complicated problem. But um, there has to be a way to push outcomes well in the direction of the positive. Like it's, it's like a percentages game. Like you, like you say, it's a mix of good and bad. Mm-hmm. Let's just get to like 70, 30, <laughs> you know, like, Definitely. are we capable of that? Like, like majority good outcomes. We try to integrate people and welcome them, especially if they're like, you know, people are fleeing horrendous situations. Like in the United States, we have plenty of space. We have a lot of space and we have a ton of resources. Totally. I don't buy this notion that we just can't no. do anything. The economy often booms <laughs> once right. you have a lot of new workers. That's I don't know. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just, man, it's hard. It's, it's hard not to talk about these things living in America all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I so, really, yeah. <laughs> well, let's, I want to talk before I let you go just a little bit about how you got to this point. Like, where did you go to school? Like, I know you're from Indiana, but then mm-hmm. you grew up in Bloomington, you moved around and oh, then yeah. went to school biographically. I went to undergrad at Bard College in upstate New York, where I was a sculpture major. I did studio art and built large sculptures. And then I moved to Berlin basically just to get out and uh, <laughs> like just it was a it was a fantasy space for me. Berlin. It was a total possibility space. Are you German? No. No. What's your like, um, ethnic? Like Elvia Wilk. Um, so Elvia is a, like a common name in Central America where I was partially raised. My parents are anthropologist archaeologists who did uh, field work there. Um, so my name comes from that, that sort of like segment of life. Uh-huh. Uh, Wilk is a Polish Jewish last name that means wolf, which is my dad's side of the family. Okay. Um, and I have a lost other half of my name, Pyburn, which is my mom's Welsh side of the family. Got it. <laughs> Interesting mix. Um, so yeah, I moved to Berlin just to get away from everything and make art in my mind. I was going to be an artist. And then quickly after arriving, I realized I was not a very good artist. I did not like making art. <laughs> Needed to stop immediately. <laughs> it took maybe a year to well, fully make the transition. By the way, that's quick. Yeah, no, many people, it takes a lot longer. Um, If there's anything I'm grateful for, it's that I gave up quickly (laughs) rather than hanging on. I'm not suited to it. Um, And yeah, and then at some point I was just writing a lot and um, sort of realized I didn't need a studio and then could just, you can write something, you can write at your desk. (laughs) And then I worked for an architecture curator for a while. I worked at an architecture magazine for some years and the whole time I was freelance art writing. And then at some point I had a hubristic idea of writing a book. So you, you were able to make a living in Berlin. Like you can move over there. You don't need like a, a visa or anything. The visa is a bit of finagling. Uh, at first it was like a student visa because I took a German class. And then, uh-huh. and then you twist it into freelance artist visa. And after a while it was possible because I was affiliated with some institutions. Um, but... 
it was possible then. It was really like I did have like I, it it worked. Like I did go there and figure out what I wanted to do and start doing it, and didn't pay very much rent for a long time. And you do you speak you speak the language? Sorta. My yeah. German's not great. It's never going to be great, but it's like passable, functional. Yeah, it's a very like blunt instrument. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way I think about it. Good though. I mean, you yeah, know. you know, you do what you need to do. Um, and then after, eventually, I moved back to New York. Decided to do a master's degree at the New School for Social Research, which I'm just about to be done with, which is good. Congratulations! That's that's going to be cool when that's done. <laughs> like, um, looking forward to it. But it was great. Um, it just let me branch out completely and read all sorts of stuff that I wouldn't have. Yeah, what does that even mean? Anyways. Social research. I mean, my, I I could take classes in anything at many different schools in New York. Um, I got very interested in medieval studies. That's my new hobby. Okay. <laughs> so I've been taking classes on the Middle Ages for a while. I took classes on anthropology to sort of parse my childhood. And but that also, I mean, very uh, a very Vonnegut move. I Definitely. Feel, and he always advocated for anthropology as a great training for a writer, just like foundational. Definitely. Yes, I was um, recently on a like had a an event where I was in dialogue with Tom McCarthy, the author, uh -huh. and he was also saying um, in his book, Satin Island, it's about an anthropologist. And he says the anthropologist is a proxy for the writer for him, um, which makes sense. You know, it's kind of the, the ultimate observer, um, but also comes with a lot of like complicated, like fantasies about the other, like only you can describe them and, you know, you can figure it out to an, a decode society where other people can't. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's, um, quite interesting actually, the, um, like actually anthropology, anthropologists as consultants, um, was that, that was also something I was researching when writing about artists as consultants, because similarly anthropologists are not supposed to serve an outside agenda if they're academics, mm. um, like artists, you're, you know, like you're not supposed to be functional, <laughs> but of course you are on some level. So anthropologists can get co-opted by corporations too? Oh, I think most anthropologists are hired by corporations and the military in America. Really? Yeah, academia not doing so good. It's yeah. like, <laughs> um, and yeah, and you know, just like, um, like always, like anthropology is traditionally well, it comes from a legacy of like colonial expansion. So it's not crazy that the military would still want anthropologists as informants um, and corporations. Totally, it's just like artists. It's like. We assume that they're they have their fingers on the pulse, and they're you know the new avant garde will always be found in the in the arts. So if we're looking for a new market target group, they're the perfect place to you know perfect Come people consult. to ask. We'll pay you a nice consulting fee. Totally, and same with anthropologists. If they can decode society, like certainly they could help us like <laughs> like market a product. Yeah. Why are these people, what are their spending habits? <laughs> oh, um, so I can see you being a teacher. Is that going to happen? Are you going to follow? In your I path? have been teaching the uh, last year. Yeah. It's been really interesting. I mean, partially just sort of, yeah, like inhabiting the, like the family genre a little bit. Um, it's been much more challenging than I thought. Um, I was teaching in a media theory department and I taught MFA students a few times. Um, and I've loved it. Um, you get a lot from it. It's I mean, it's challenging in the best way, but also I found it, I mean, I think navigating American academia is really like really tricky. Like yeah. administrative work takes up like a massive amount of time. And then students need all sorts of support that isn't really about the academics. 
um, especially teaching undergrads. It was like, um, yeah, I felt like it was much more about like a holistic kind of like, how do you learn? Like, how can we, you know, how can the class be a safe space? All this kind of stuff that I, I just hadn't really thought about fully before doing it. Um, but yeah, I'll teach my first writing class later this year. And that should also, where at? um, it's at catapult my, um, the, the publisher oh, right. of, um, the, I guess, um, umbrella publisher of my book because <laughs> they own soft school. Exactly. Right. Um, and they, t- they do writing classes. Um, but I'm kind of excited about that. That's not something I've done before. Cause I tend to teach like in a more arts, um, media and arts environment so far. Um, but that, I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's a I different th- kind of thing. I think you're suited to it. Thank you. For what it's worth. <laughs> Thanks. Are you working on another book? I started one. Um, I don't know if I'm going to finish that one. I feel like, uh, but then again, I felt like while writing Oval, I was reaching too high and I was never going to get there. And that's how much, that's how I feel right now. Um, but I can't tell if it's because I actually might not get there with this one. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully there's precedent. Hopefully you're on your way. Hopefully I, yeah, learned how to reach <laughs> the uh, first time. Uh, well, it's great to meet you. Congratulations on the publication and success of your book. And I wish you the best on the next one. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Okay. All right. That's Elvia Wilk. Her novel is called Oval. It is available from Soft Skull Press. You can find her online at elviapw.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at 3LVVIA. Elvia Wilk. And the novel, one more time, is called Oval. Go get your copy now. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme, song, music. As always, thank you to the band Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, if you want to transcribe an episode, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a few bucks in the hat. So what's coming up? Next week on the program, I have Karen Stefano, author of What a Body Remembers, which is the uh, June book club pick, the TNB book club pick, available from Rare Bird Books. Karen Stefano, What a Body Remembers. It's a memoir of uh, sexual assault. Pretty heavy stuff. And we had a good talk, so stay tuned for that. And uh, stay tuned in general. Some good ones coming up. As we uh, round the bend here into summer, it's going to get hot. I don't like the heat, got to be honest. But I'm going to endure it uh, stoically. All right, I got to go read. I got to go listen to an audiobook at double speed while pacing my neighborhood. I gotta go listen to an audiobook at double speed while thinking about the two other books that I've gotta read that I haven't read yet. And then I'm gonna read them while thinking about the other books that are inevitably going to uh, land on my pile. It's not that I don't it's not that I dislike reading these books, it's just a it's a it's an energy level issue. Concentration issue. It's a uh, I need to find a quiet space. Trying not to drink so much caffeine in my uh, old age. 
I also started wearing a bike helmet, just so you know. I'm gonna try to be better about that too. I'm trying to improve. Can somebody get me a sparkling water?